Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Theology of Geography. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October the 9th, 2016. For those of us who've become overly familiar with the Bible, it can sometimes read like a tired text. But last week, I read a book by the British novelist A.N. Wilson called The Book of the People. It reminded me how the Bible is often full of subversive surprises. Three of the lectionary readings this week are stories that reverse the roles of smug insiders in excluded outsiders. They show how God speaks and acts in shocking ways and places far beyond my pathetic little boundaries. Jeremiah 29 recalls the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. The army of the king of Babylon besieged Jerusalem, breached the city walls, then burned down every important building. They plundered and pillaged, executed government officials, deported the elite, and left the poor to fend for themselves amidst famine and disease. The puppet king Zedekiah consulted with the prophet Jeremiah. Is there any word from the Lord? Yes, said Jeremiah, there was a word from God. Surrender to Babylon. Don't give up. Don't fool yourself. Give up. Don't listen to the reckless lies and false dream of your psychophants. This is the end. Accept defeat. Later, Jeremiah wrote a letter to the prisoners of war who had been exiled to Babylon. It reads, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Seek the welfare of your pagan conqueror who just burned your sacred temple to the ground. May the blessing of God be on Babylon. Embrace your exile, for there will be no miraculous exodus this time. As we know, ancient Babylon is now modern-day Iraq. The historical ruins of Babylon, including the remains of Nebuchadnezzar's palace, are in the town of Hillah, about 60 miles south of Baghdad. Saddam Hussein even exploited this historical fame by calling himself the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And so, a modern paraphrase of Jeremiah's letter, accept your defeat, by Iraq. Pray for Iraq's prosperity. Seek God's blessing for Saddam in Baghdad. 
It's no wonder that Jeremiah's own people tried to murder him for this treasonous message. Then 2 Kings 5, 2 Kings chapter 5, tells the story of Naaman. He was a military officer of a major enemy of Israel, Aram. The narrator praises Naaman in glowing terms. He writes, he was a valiant, valiant soldier, a great man in the sight of his master, and highly regarded. Then he adds a shocking detail. Through Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Aram. God gave victory to Israel's enemy through a pagan military officer? Yes. And so again, a creative rereading for today. Ancient Aram in central Syria is, believe it or not, modern-day Halab, Aleppo. It's one of the oldest continually inhabited cities in the world. And so my attempt, perhaps you can do better. Bashar al-Assad was a Syrian military general, praised by all as a valiant warrior and a great man. The Christian God had granted victory to Muslim Syria through Assad. This is not where the story of Naaman ends. The story ends with his conversion to the one true God, but it's definitely where the story begins. And at least for me, it makes for very uncomfortable reading. The third story comes from the Gospel of Luke who's the only Gentile author in the Bible. Whereas the very first sentence of Matthew calls Jesus the son of David, son of Abraham, Luke describes him as the son of Adam. That is, Jesus is not just king of the Jews, he's the son of all humanity. For Jesus, the election of the Jews did not mean the exclusion of the Gentiles. Throughout the Gospels, the Jewish Jesus embraced the unclean Gentiles, the Roman centurion, the Canaanite woman and her demon-possessed daughter, the woman at the well in John 4, the Good Samaritan, and then this week's Gospel in Luke 17 about the healing of the ten lepers. And as we know, only the outsider Samaritan gave thanks to Jesus for his healing. And even Jesus did not refrain from calling him, quote-unquote, this foreigner. Once again, there's a theology of geography at play in this story. The ruins of ancient Samaria are now found near Nablus, ancient Shechem, in the West Bank. In my contemporary retelling, as with the other two stories, we have another unlikely hero, the only person to turn back and give thanks to God is a West Bank Palestinian. In his book, The Faith of the Outsider, Exclusion and Inclusion in the Biblical Story, Frank Spina explores the insider-outsider theme. He reminds us that it's impossible to ignore the scandal of particularity throughout Scripture. Israel alone is God's elect people. In the words of Amos, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. 
And Israel is not only God's special insider community, it's the only insider community. All other nations are distinctly outsiders. In Paul's language, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. But that's only part of the story, for there are many plot reversals like the three stories for this week. The Bible often elevates the outsider. This inclusion of outsiders, Spina argues, is neither incidental nor haphazard in the biblical witness. These outsider stories cast the insider in a negative light and the outsider as superior in virtue or faith. Spina considers seven of these stories where the outsider is brought in and the insider is cast out. Esau, Tamar, Rahab, Jonah, Ruth, the woman at the well in John 4 who had married five times, and then Naaman. Psalm 66 for this week is addressed not just to Israel, but two times to all the earth. It's a reminder to look beyond the limitations of our own little worlds and to consider the strange ways and places that the creator of all the world is at work. And for books this week, I review the book that I mentioned in my introduction, in my essay. The author is A. N. Wilson. The title of the book, The Book of the People, How to Read the Bible. New York, Harper, 2016. This book is 212 pages. When A.N. Wilson entered St. Stephen's House at Oxford University, he planned to become an ordained priest in the Church of England. That lasted just one year until he renounced his faith and focused on a career in writing, which, in retrospect, now having published nearly 50 books in a prolific and award-winning career, seems to have been a good vocational choice. After attending church all his life, Wilson became what he calls a born-again atheist. For 30 years, he was a well-known and outspoken skeptic. He writes, I had become like one of the Billy Grahamites, only in reverse. In fact, in 1991, he published a pamphlet called Against Religion, Why We Should Live Without It. Then came his reconversion. In 2009, Wilson published an essay in the New Statesman called Why I Believe Again. If you go to our website in this book review, you can see the URL. Religious, religious belief, he came to understand, isn't primarily about who has the best intellectual arguments, pro or con. Religion concerns the whole person, and in particular, those deeply mysterious and meaningful aspects of being fully human, like music, love, language, and ethics, that a strictly materialist point of view fails to capture. Wilson's newest book, he writes, is an attempt to persuade people to read the Bible. But how should we read the Bible? 
In his view, both liberal critics and conservative defenders make the same mistake. They read the Bible like it was an archaeology expedition, finding either more or less reliable historical evidence with which to accept or reject the faith. But the quest to find the historical Jesus behind the Christ of faith is, says Wilson, a dead end that goes nowhere in a doomed enterprise. The ancients never intended to write dispassionate history. We should read the Bible not as a puzzle to solve, but as a mysterious encounter with the living God who speaks in its pages. This is what millions of people down through the centuries and all over the world have done. Wilson adopts what he calls a semi-fictional form to make his point. He recalls memories, characters, incidents, and especially a God-stricken friend whom he calls L to describe his own encounters with the Bible. Reading the Bible is primarily an act of the imagination, says Wilson. In his own experience, that means recalling the conversion of people like Simone Weil while reading the intensely biblical poetry of George Herbert, architecture like Hagia Sophia, the engravings of William Blake, the lectures by the literary critic Northrop Frye, and the incarnation of the word by social prophets like Martin Luther King, Jr., I love this book. In addition to his remarkable erudition and his interesting personal story, Wilson writes with both wit and modesty. For those of us who are overly familiar with the Bible and from whom it has become a tired text, or for those who dismiss it for all the wrong reasons, this book is a blast of fresh air. Once again, the author a. N. Wilson, and the title, The Book of the People, How to Read the Bible. For movies this week, we turn to one of my favorite directors, Werner Herzog, the documentarian. He has a new movie out called Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World, 2000. 16. It was released in late August. If you want a creation myth for the birth of the internet, filmmaker Werner Herzog suggests October 29, 1969 at 10.30 p.m. That's when computers at UCLA and the Stanford Research Institute talk to each other. Eventually, there came about remarkable achievements with things like online education and the driverless cars. This being a Herzog film, though, dark and existential questions soon followed the simple history and the romantic claims. Internet addictions. Horrific photos that should have remained private that were broadcast to the entire world. Solar flares that could fry the whole net. Cyber attacks, whether corporate, state, or by hackers. Living on Mars, according to Elon Musk. Artificial intelligence. And, of course, the whole future of humanity. By now, the whole world is deeply dependent and interconnected with 
the internet, which is to say that we are vulnerable to all sorts of massive disruptions. And Werner Herzog? I heard him say on a PBS interview that he does not own a cell phone. I watched this film on Amazon Video for $6.99. Once again, Werner Herzog, a documentary film, Lo and Behold. For Poetry This Week, another in the series of poems by Denise Levertov, who lived from 1923 to 1997. This poem is called The Avowal. As swimmers dare to lie face to the sky and water bears them, as hawks rest upon air and air sustains them, so would I learn to attain freefall and float in, into Creator Spirit's deep embrace, knowing no effort earns that all-surrounding grace. Denise Levertov. It's called The Avowal. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 9th. 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.